This episode of the Tabletop Submarine Podcast is produced by Cake Pie Games. Cake Pie Games, games that are a piece of cake to set up and easy as pie to teach. Welcome to the Tabletop Submarine, where we dive a little bit deeper into why we love board games. Strap in and prepare for a deep sea adventure. You're your host. Hey, Andrew. Uh, yeah, Josh. You live near Chicago, right? I do. So, fun fact. Did you know that they're actually planning on building an elevated high-speed train from Helsinki to Olu? Oh, that's interesting. Well, the reason I bring it up is because it's going to be modeled after the L in Chicago. Do you know what that is? Yeah, it's an elevated train, so it sits above the ground by quite a distance, yeah. Yeah, so it, it's what's really interesting about this is that they're giving it a very terrible name, and I just don't think it's going to catch on. They're, they're going to call it the El Finland. <laughs> wow. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, well... I continue to make bad puns, but the reason I say Elf and is because we have a very special guest today. My name is Josh. Welcome to the Tabletop Submarine Podcast. With me is my number one L train. Yeah, I'm Andrew, and today we have a very special guest. It is Alan R. Moon, the designer of many games, but most famous is Ticket to Ride uh, and all the different maps of Ticket to Ride. All, I think, 157 maps or something like that. I'm not <laughs> sure. Then there's also the fan-made maps that are based on that. That are There's actually some pretty cool ones out there, too. So, yeah, and I, I see there's another Ticket to Ride map coming out besides Ticket Type Ride Legacy, I think I just saw, right? I think... Uh, is it Paris or something like that's coming out? Oh wow! Yeah, I, I thought that was a secret, but I guess it's not. It's, you it's on. That. It's on BGG, so oh, I wow. guess I feel like I can say it. Wow! And so we we still are haggling a little bit over the rules. Actually, <laughs> that's funny. Well, it's out there now. So woohoo! More more ticket to rise. Not a bad thing. Well, so. Uh, obviously, Alan, Alan Armoon, designer of many games, most famously, I would say Ticket to Ride, but you've designed a lot of games, but people who may not know you, may not know your name, who are you, what do you do in the industry? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I started out um, you know, working at Avalon Hill, which um, back then, I think everybody who was a gamer thought was like the, the dream job. Um, and for the first couple of years, it was really fun. Um, and then after a couple of years, I really wanted a, some money so I could have a better life because <laughs> I was <laughs> – so I started looking around and uh, and got a job at Parker Brothers after I'd been at Avalon Hill for four years. Um, and I thought that would be, you know, my dream job actually. And it turned out to be just horrible. It was just – it's a company run by marketing. It was just – I was oh. part of a design group for a couple of years. Um, and we came up with great ideas. I thought like some of our stuff was great. They never used anything any of us did for two years, so it was just oh. a waste. Um, and then I tried to be a game, uh, an independent game designer after that, and failed really miserably. Um, and then I sort of went to work as a, a waiter for you know on and off for about twenty years. And then I actually got a job at uh, at uh, at the time it was called FX Schmidt. It was the American branch of the German company. Um, and later got bought by Robinsberger. So I really had a real good job there. I was in charge of licensing and product development, going to Europe a lot. Um, really fascinating job because I got to see the whole other side of the industry, um, you know, across the table for people presenting ideas to me. So that was that was yeah. great. And then I sort of uh, thought like it was time to try and be a game designer again. Um, and then Elfinland won the game of the year, which sort of uh, just let me get back to zero in my life sort of <laughs> i was kind of like heavily in debt and everything else um, so that got me back to zero and, and i was able to go and try being a game designer again and then i was just you know i produced tons of games in the first few years none without any kind of big financial success until tickets ride and and really and people find this hard to believe but if tickets ride hadn't won the game of the year and started to sell lots of copies i would have to go back to work i mean i just uh you know, the the realities for a game designer, especially back then, were that it's hard to make a living. Um, and it's it's a lot easier now, I think, because of the Internet and because of Kickstarters and all sorts of things. 
but it's still hard to make a good living. I think there are very few people, a lot less than people think. No, I agree 100% with that. And also, you know, yes, we have more opportunities because there are more board game publishers out there and there's more money to be spent. But at the same time, the breakthrough is still really, really difficult. Just getting a game out there is a difficult thing. Then you add in the lead time of two to three years of development or even just creating the game. And then you add in whatever marketing is involved in that. And then on top of that, if it's not a hit, well, then you got to start the process over again. So, I mean, it's, I don't mean to daunt, you know, game designers out there, if you love it, then do it because it's a, as a hobby, it's spectacular. I would, I would design games even if I wasn't selling them to anybody because it's just fun to have that process of um, playing the puzzle in your brain and figuring out what people like and don't like. And the playtesting is fun and stuff like that. But uh, if you're trying to do this for a living, it's best you have something else going on too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's thousands of games coming out every year now. I mean, and I always tell people like your odds of an evergreen, and there's to me there's only four evergreens. There's Settlers Con, Carcassonne, Ticket to Ride, and Codename. That's in thirty years. There's four evergreens. That's where your real odds are. Yeah, and I try not to discourage people too much, but I think they need to be realistic. They're like, you yeah. know, it's 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 tough. It's 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 probably even harder than being an artist or a musician. I'd probably add a few more games to that list. Like, I don't know, maybe Sagrada might be one at this point uh, is getting to be an evergreen. That's that's kicking off in a lot of different ways. They've also got their their new legacy game and stuff like that. But yeah, I agree. That's a difficult thing to get. The only one I would add is Pandemic, maybe. Yeah. I mean, the evergreen to me is like after 20 years, ticket to ride sales are going up. So that's, I mean, that's that's a big number. So if you... Like if you if you understood about Settlers of Khan, I heard the first ten years the sales were just going up by like more than twenty five percent. I mean that's incredible. And you know, I, yeah, but I think you're also saying a Mount Rushmore there. I mean, like that's <laughs> that's the four biggest of all right. time, right? Exactly. Like that's yeah. well, that's what I mean. I think that you know, if you have one, that's what everybody wants. I mean, that's what of you, you want. You know, you want to. My life is comfortable because it's takes right. I mean, I don't have to do anything else. I just enjoy doing. So I'm continuing to do it, but I think, like I said, I think you can make a living. I think somebody like Freedom and Frieza is a good example. Like he's run his own company for years, yep. and as far as I know, he makes a pretty good living. And so that's I don't think you could do that before like the last twenty years. It was real hard. So recently, speaking of Ticket to Ride, you just really the big release that everyone's talking about is Tickets to Ride: Legends of the West, which is a legacy game that was a co-design with kind of. Three, another three heavy hitters in the industry, you know, you, Rob Davio, and Matt Leacock. Can you give us like a short, detailed, like, what was, what what built up to this moment, which I've been hoping for for years, but I'm <laughs> right. certainly here now. <laughs> what, what built up to this? Yeah, I mean, I played Pandemic Legacy 1 and just loved it so much. And and I thought, wow, well, you know, maybe I should consider a Legacy uh, Tickets Ride. People have been suggesting it, and, and actually a bunch of designers had come to me and and asked if I would work with them on it. And I thought, like, well, if, I, if I'm going to do it, I want Rob and Matt. You know, I mean, these guys. And, and not only, are, you know, they're, we were sort of friends, not great friends, but we were friends. And I thought, like, they're creative and fun, but, like, like they have a process. Like, I really need a process. I mean, I, I really foolishly thought, like, I could do a whole legacy game myself. That's ridiculous. I mean, I would never have been able to do this. But, and and once I saw Rob and Matt at work, like I was just so impressed by, you know, the way they worked and just their process. And and that became like the greatest game design experience of my life easily. And it was a long one, too. I mean, we worked on it for three or four years, um, but it was just endlessly fun. And, and I've, I kind of missed it, actually, when we stopped. So. <laughs> You just got to well, make another looks, one. <laughs> yeah. We're considering say, we're considering it. looks like it. this is going to do monster sales numbers. So you should have a, yeah. a follow-up probably, <laughs> whether you do Ticket to Ride Europe Legacy at this point. I don't know. You're going to do all of them down the line, all the different ones? We're meeting in January to talk about it. We wanted to wait and see how the sales are going to be. But the feedback has just been so amazing. Um, I'm... Probably my favorite review ever was posted on BGG where the guy said, you know, he played a two-player, he played a four-player, which is amazing that he's played that much of it. And he said, he said, everything about this is great. <laughs> I was like, oh, wow. <laughs> I love that. So, yeah, there's been some amazing feedback I've gotten personally and, you know, the reviews. I mean, Tom Vassell's a big Ticket to Ride fan, but his uh, his group, their, their review of the game was awesome. And he, he touched on a bunch of the points that we were really – 
you know, really thrilled that he, you know, he he got what we were trying to present. So that was well. I'm going to buy it when I eventually when my game store gets it. I'm going to buy it. I, I, I'm not, I have never played a legacy game before. I played like campaign games, but like never a legacy. So like, it's just an easy sell. You put Ticket to Ride on it and a Western theme, Western expansion theme. It's like, yep. Yeah, I'm I'm gonna get it. <laughs> well, thanks. <laughs> I think it's well, you know the other thing that that I was really thrilled about is that people have been saying that they would play it again, and I think that's something that's different for legacy games. Um, and I've played it three or four times, that four times, and it's it's fun. I mean, it's fun even the you know because I let other people make like the global decisions, um, but like it's mm-hmm. just a really fun game to try and do better and try and experience different things. So when, when, you know, Tom, all his crew basically said, oh, we'd like to play it again. I was like, oh, yeah, that's awesome. So you've only played it four or five times. <laughs> How many times has it been playtested amongst the three of you? I mean, it's got to be in the thousands, right? I mean, you, yeah. the only way you can hone that kind of depth is to play it test a crazy amount. Well, this was something I had never done before. Like, we each would get a group of playtesters. And so we each made a prototype and then sent it to a group of playtesters. And then we watched, you know, 20 hours of video each. And then mm-hmm. we did it again, and we just did that over and over. Um, that was exhausting. I, I just watching the video, you know, trying to like, you know, get in, like, watch everything that's going on and see where the mistakes are. It was very, mm-hmm. it was a very tedious and, you know, and, and hard work. For, it was really, um, but I think, yeah, the, then we'd all get together and compare notes of like what this person did, what this person did. Yeah. So there was, it was in playtesting for years. Um, and, you know, and it changed a lot, obviously, um, which was cool. You know, we would keep going back and revising it. And if we were doing it now, still, I mean, like, since it's come out and I've played it a couple more times, like, I, there's all sorts of things I would change again, you know, just because there's new ideas. But but a lot of those ideas, yeah. you know, can be good for the next one if there is. Jumping off this idea of train games, though, another thing that I know Andrew is really pumped about is news on Union Pacific. But Andrew, go ahead and uh, take this one, because I know you're excited. So just as a personal note, because we tell stories in this thing, my father was a hobby gamer way before I was even born. So he was big into the Avalon Hill games and stuff like that. And so when I was born, of course, we had a big enough game collection that I had to grow into playing the games in the game collection, which, of course, I did. So I feel like I'm lucky enough to have the superpower of that background leading into all of my game designs. And one of the games we played the absolute most was we ended the evening after game nights by playing a game of Union Pacific. Mm -hmm. And so I know that game probably better than I know 90% of other games out there. I mean, I've played Wingspan, I don't know, 100 times or whatever. Now, I probably played Union Pacific a thousand times. Uh, my father bought multiple copies of that game and we played it with new people. He would just leave the copy there so we could play a new copy (laughs) when we came home. So we as a family have probably purchased 10 to 15 copies of this and they just get spread out. Um, I have a copy in my living room right now because I don't, I will never not have a copy of that game. It's not a perfect game. So I'm hearing that you have a new version, a little modern version, which makes me so excited. (laughs) Yeah, there's, I don't really, so originally, um, a guy had come to me um, and said he wanted to do Union Pacific. Like, he was like you. He was a big fan. And I signed a contract with them, and then the pandemic screwed all sorts of things up, and, and yeah. he decided not to do it. So um, I already had the new version and some changes to the original. Um, so I, I'm, I'm at the stage now where what's more important to me, there's a lot of things that are important to me than, than sort of going with a big company. So I wanted to go with somebody I really enjoy working with and um and sean brown that uh, you know mr b games he's a great guy and he did uh diamond dig it was by uh, bobby west and i and i asked him mm-hmm. if he was interested and he said oh god yeah he said um so we're we haven't even really started um the, you know the development or the production of the game but we've talked about it a lot um so there's a new version it's going to be a double board with the uh, union pacific on one side with some changes um and then the other side is is quite a bit different. Um, you know, uses the same basic mechanic, but um, adds in a whole bunch of things. So, um, but but I'll be honest with you. What's what's really important to me um, at this stage is getting a box that I can be really proud of. Because if you, yeah. you know, one of the things that drives me crazy about the game industry is is companies have no respect for game designers and they don't see the value in them. So you know, if you look at a book. If you look at a Tom Clancy book, it says Tom Clancy and some small title yeah. and then some artwork faded in the back. 
That's what I want. I want Alan R. Moon's Union Pacific, some art in the back. And so Sean has agreed to that, and we're working on that before we even go into the game. Like, I want a box cover. I can show my mom and go, look, mom, I'm a game designer. You know, there are... There are so many stupid things about this. And there are, there are people who produce their own game and don't even put their name on the box. I'm like, would you do oh, that if you were a book? You know, I don't think you would do it if you were an author. And it, But it's like game companies, you know, like if you look at Union Pacific, I mean, I was furious when I got the first copy of that game because my, I didn't even think my name was on the box. So I, I wrote to him it's and said, in the train. Yeah, yeah, I called and he says, oh, it's on there. And I said, where is it? And he goes, is it? and I was like, oh, my God, could you have made it any smaller? Jeez. Not much, no. <laughs> it's just, that's pathetic. And that was like after Elfinland had won the game of the year before. And that was the respect I got. I got these little letters and these trade calls. <laughs> I was just like, come on. You know, America is about personality and about people. Mm-hmm. It's not about corporations. Nobody cares what game company publishes a game. They care about the game itself. And they might care about game designers if companies would give us a chance. <laughs> but. You know, they're just missing such a huge opportunity. And and the bottom line that I always say is, like, it can't hurt to put a game designer's name, you know, in big letters. You know, it just, there's no way it can hurt, but it might help. But they don't get it. Everybody does the same thing. And when I worked at Parker Brothers, I used to go around and ask people, like, how come you don't put game designers' names on the box? They go, they had all these weird excuses. But the bottom line was, we've never done it. I mean, is this the stupidest reason in the world? (laughs) Like, <laughs> that's the way the world works though right it's it's based on precedent until someone breaks it and then that becomes the new precedent so i think once you put out this new version with your name big on the front plus you know i'm a person who buys games based on the designer's cred like i i love you know three games by this designer i'm gonna buy the sure, next one because yeah. i believe that they're gonna produce the same level of quality and i'm willing to try it out even if i'm not sold on the theme or not sold on the art. I'm going to give it a try anyway. Yeah, I buy every book by certain authors. Some of them are terrible, but I still buy the next one because that's that's who I read. You know, I mean, that, yeah, it's just crazy. <laughs> Sorry, that was kind of a rant, but, you know. Like, no, I love it. <laughs> we we like rants here. We do. <laughs> we're, we're, my instruments are starting to go off, so let's go ahead and do our pre-launch to talk about what we've been playing recently. The pre-launch. Get to know us and our guests. In the pre-launch, we talk about one game we have played recently, and we give our thoughts on it. So, Andrew, how about you kick this one off and take it away? So, I've been traveling a lot recently, so I it's hard for me to take too many games around. So, we have our little packet of games. We have, a, like, maybe 10 different card games and, and small games packed in there. And recently, I picked up a copy of Travel Azul, uh, because it was just the right size to fit into, literally, a gallon-sized Ziploc bag. If it fits in there, that means I can take it to the beach, I can take it wherever, and I can throw it in my bag and stuff like that. I think this is a very clever implementation of Azul. Uh, It's not only the Azul tiles, but much smaller, but there also is a concave back, and then the boards have a little dome shape on them, so they fit right on top of it. So even if you shake the board around, the pieces don't move. And there's a score slider across the top. I think it's a really smart version of it. I've played it many, many times now on uh, on different cafes and different beach uh, tables and stuff like that. So I uh, highly recommend picking up a copy of this. It's not expensive. And I think it, it to me, it's going to replace real Azul because it's the kind of game I want to take out and about and not play at a table at home. So uh, big fan of this one. I think it's a really great job. Josh, what have you been playing? So I have been enjoying my life playing small box games because I love small boxes. Mm-hmm. And I got my hands on sea salt and paper. From Bruno Fru, not Bruno for duty. Bruno Cathala. There's too many Brunos in the world sometimes. <laughs> no, there's not. We need more Brunos. <laughs> they Bruno make good Cathala. games. They do. Bruno Cathala and Thea Rivera. So this is a small little card game that has all origami art. So it's very breathtaking to look at. But simply put, you're trying to make a collection, a set collection in your hand that's going to get you the most points based on what the card's abilities are. Uh, on your turn, you have two discard piles in front of you. You can take one from the discard pile that's face up or two face down cards in the deck and pick one, then discard the other one. And if you have any sets in your hand of like crabs, sharks and swimmers or sea or fish you can play them and they give you a special ability to do whether it be take another card do another turn or steal a card from another player you're going back and forth until one person reaches seven points and then at that point when they know that they can either call for last chance 
or they can say to stop. If you call for a last chance, you have the opportunity to maybe get more points than the other players by like a long shot. If you just say stop, you just everyone just scores points. This I've played this probably twenty times at this point, both wow. on board game arena and in person. This is so. This is. It's almost like it's almost a fantasy realms killer for me because I, I mean two different. I think they're different enough games that I can keep them both, but like. The idea of creating sets in your hand to create points is very similar, mm-hmm. but and they both have similar mechanisms where you take a card from discard pile or take a card from the top of the deck. This is just so simple and fun, and it doesn't have the excruciating math that Fantasy Realms does. Mm-hmm. And I just I can sit down and play a game one round of this game or a full game up to forty points. And that little mechanism of pushing your luck, whether if I choose to stop now, I might get six extra points. Or if I just say stop, I'm guaranteed nine points. It's it's a really great decision to have in a game that is super simple and lacks and has a lot of randomness, to be honest. But mm-hmm. there is just it's one of my, it's just my thing. There's probability in it. Trying to figure out how far can I push this till I get my stuff. What set is the best to take right now? And it's really well done game. I mean, I give it so much props. I I want to get the expansion for it. The extra salt expansion coming out for it. I sleeve this game. I, I don't sleeve <laughs> games. I sleeve this game partly because you know the card quality is not great. I'll say that. But also, I've been playing it consistently. The, the stuff is starting to bend. I want to keep it protected. Does it fit in the box that it came in? Absolutely not. I just have rubber bands now. But great game. Well done. Well, well done. Well done, Bombex. That is a sea salt and paper. Yeah, I love it because I I do feel like that art is differentiating. And on top of that. I think the world needs only card games out there that help people get into the hobby and are just simple mechanics with depth of strategy. And I think this is top of the list as far as that goes. So well done, Josh. Alan, what have you been playing recently? Um, It's not really new, but I I love um, one of the games which I always think like I wish I had designed is a game called Dice Miner. Um, You know, it was originally it was a Kickstarter and it sold out. It was a little tough to get, but um, I, I think it's more available now. Um, I just love it. It's it's the most clever use of dice, I think, ever in a game. Um, and it's usually I'm incredibly unlucky at it, and I still love the game. But I have to say the last five or six games I've played just in the last couple of months, I was unbelievably lucky. And it was just sort of like giving me back all the bad luck. I had, I don't know if you know the game, but like at the end of round two, when we re-rolled for round three, I rolled 50 points just by the dice I had. The game was incredible. Like everywhere was like it was just the perfect roll. Like every die matched up with something else. I was like, like five. The five white dice were one, two, three, four, five, fifteen points. All the red and green dice were dragons and shields. And and I was like, well, we don't really have to play the third round. And I was like, this is incredible. <laughs> <laughs> it was, but there was a series of games like that because or before that, I had like one game where I had 12 roll, re-rolls for a two. I couldn't re-roll the two, so I lost the game. And, you know, that's, and it's fun. I mean, that's part of the the fun of it for me. But, but like, the last five or six games, I just could do no wrong. It was so great. You know? it's, I, and it's not all luck. It's not an all-luck game. It's really interesting picking the dice off the mountain and trying to, you know, prevent the other people from getting the dice they want. Um, and the use of the beer, the beer mechanic in the game, is just really clever. Um, so I love it and it's really seems to have flown under the radar and it's a shame because it's a great, this one has some nice table presence as you're kind of stacking them on the side of the mountain. It's kind of cool. I have seen this game a lot. I have not had a chance to sit down and play it personally. So you have just given me another reason to go and and check it out. So thank you for that. You're welcome. (laughs) My instruments are ready. We're fired up, ready to dive down. Let's go ahead and head into Alan's story. Alan, the helm is yours. We're ready for what is your most memorable tabletop experience? Yeah, I mean, I, there's been a few, but I, I think I have to go back to uh, when Elfinland won the game of the year. Um, back in those days, the jury, it, it was a different system. So the jury had called me a few months before the award. And that was good and bad. I mean, it was great to know I had won. Um, but like people were so desperate to find out who had won because they knew the jury picked the award several months before. So people would be calling me and saying, you know, did you win? And I, and I had to lie, and I hated that. Um, but there were, several, there were some amazing things that happened um, in that. 
the, the morning of the award, um, it was in the Grand Hotel Esplanade in Berlin. And I was coming downstairs. I think the award started at 10 o'clock. And I, I, the elevator got to the lobby at maybe 10 of 10. And the door opens. And there's an AP reporter there. He says, you have to come with me. And I said, well, wait a minute. I got to be in this award ceremony in 10 minutes. He says, no, you have to come with me. My deadline is like right now. So he takes me outside the hotel. I have a puppet, an elf puppet, like I was. The, one of my friends had given me as a good luck charm. And he gives me a copy of the game, and I have the elf puppet. And he t- he's taking pictures outside. And I said, I really need to get into the award. And he goes, okay, I got pictures now. So I go into the award. So the really cool thing about that was the next morning, I got up and went down, in, down to breakfast. And there was a get, pretty big gift shop in the hotel and a newspaper stand. And there were 30, 40, I don't even, even more papers all, from all over Germany. Everybody had that picture in the paper. I couldn't believe it. I was like, this is incredible. This would never happen in America, obviously. And I just started, I bought a copy of every single paper, like cut out the article. Because <laughs> I, I just couldn't believe, like, my picture was in every paper the next day. And like, it, it was just amazing feeling. I just stood there in the coffee shop and I was just overwhelmed. It was just like one of those emotional moments, you know. And the day before had been pretty emotional too. But like that, that moment of just standing in that coffee shop looking at this paper like wow it's it's such it was you know sort of like the culmination of everything i i'd worked for in my life it was it was just great i can only imagine that those are framed somewhere on your (laughs) wall of fame somewhere in your house you've got an entire wall of just newspaper (laughs) articles put up from all these different awards you've got they're actually not but they're in they're in a box like you know (laughs) and and i have i have looked at them once in a while and and i still have the picture the picture was a you know i don't like pictures of myself usually but this was a pretty good picture taken outside and and but it was just such a weird feeling when that elevator opens i'm like oh i got to get to the award and this guy goes you have to come with me and i'm like oh man <laughs> okay <laughs> when it first got nominated or considered for the spiel were you surprised that elfinland was picked how was that process for you yeah it was pretty surprising cuz everybody had said you know they're not going to pick a fantasy game um, that was probably number one. And, you know, and I thought to myself, well, you know, people, lots of people think they know what the jury's thinking and what they're doing and what their motivation is. I think it's really hard to know what those men and women are thinking and, you know, what their real motivation is. And it's changed a lot over the last few years. It's gotten, mm-hmm. gotten way, you know, much more towards simpler games, the party game. So I think, you know, I was, I, the feedback on Elfinland was so good, uh, you know, when it came out. But I thought, like, well, <clears throat> one of the things I think is true about the jury is that if a game is already doing well, they want to be part of that. You know, they don't want to, they don't want to not pick it and have the game do well without their award on it. So I thought that right. was a big positive for the game. So I, I was hopeful, you know, but it, again, it's part of like the dream as a game designer to win this award. So, you know, like, I was just like, oh, I, yeah, I sure certainly hope it happens and it would be great. But when they called me that day, I was just floored. It, it was, I was actually at work at FX Schmidt, so, so it, was, it was pretty interesting. And then, you know, the people at Robinsberger were in a weird position where they had somebody working for their company who had won for another company, won the award for another company. So that was a little... Yeah, so what do you think, what is it about Elfinland, do you think, that the Spiel jury liked that eventually led to it winning the award? Yeah, that's a tough question. I mean, I think it had a, a, a different mechanic. You know, it's it's so interesting to think about, like, 1998, um, the number of new games coming out was so tiny compared to the number of new games that come out now. So when I look at new games, like, almost all of them have something interesting about them, you know, interesting mechanic. But 1998 was kind of still in the, you know, the birth period of Euros and um, so I think it was it was different. I think they liked the theme. I think they liked the production. And I think, you know, my guess would be that Amiga was a company that has not won the award. So they, you know, they like to spread the award around. And um, so I think it was a combination of all sorts of factors, um, you know, and just and this is the other thing about being a game designer. So much of of what we do is is beyond our control. Like when I pass a prototype yeah. to a game company. You know, I'm basically done at that point, and they take over, and and they have to do everything right. I mean, it's not with tickets ride. I mean, we can go back and look at this, and 
you know, people say, well, you know, it's, you knew it was going to win. Of course I didn't know it was going to win. I would have done it 20 years ago. You know? but, right. <laughs> but it's like, you know, when that, when I gave that to, uh, to Days of Wonder, they had to do everything right um, from that step point on for the game to win. So, and that's, you know, that's, I don't, to me, that's like 90% luck. I mean, I can do my job. I can design a good game. But then it passes out of my control, and and what happens then is just beyond that. I feel like there's a parallel there for screenwriters and movies winning Oscars, right? <laughs> exactly, like, yeah. You can write it, you can do the part, but then you have to get a good producer, you have to get a good director, you got to get good actors, then you got to get good marketing, and like all those things. All those things are what you send your prototype to a publisher for. Yeah. You, and that's why I think picking the right publisher to pitch your game to makes a big difference and it's got to be the right fit. Otherwise you're wasting your time as well. So you really got to pick and choose who you want to publish your game and who you think will do the best job with it. And, and there's also the luck of like in 2001, I had three games nominated for game of the year. Um, and I was really convinced that one of those was going to win, but it was the year of Carcassonne. So, you know, everything. Ah. <laughs> so, you know, all of that effort and, you know, people later said to me, you know, why didn't you spread those games out? Well, I specifically had targeted that year. Like, okay, if I bombard, you know, I had like five really good prototypes that, that I tried to right. sell, you know, and then it just happened to be like, oh, that was the bad timing. You know, so what are you going to do? <laughs> so when you are creating your games, how do you choose which companies to trust your games with to pitch them to? What's your process? Yeah, I mean, before it was back in the you know the early two thousands when I had lots of prototypes. I basically would have sold the game to almost anybody. Like if they were interested, <laughs> you know, okay, go ahead, I'll give you a chance. Um, and there was actually there. I, I took a European trip um, back then, where I had all these. I had about ten or twelve prototypes and was just traveling around to game companies. And I sold two of those games on the spot, which I'd never done before. And both of them turned out to be disasters, um, which was a bummer. One of them never got published because I'll tell you, it was about monsters knocking down skyscrapers. And so six months later, 9-11 happened and the company refused to do the game. Um, And that game's never gotten published. And it's sort of, it wouldn't be a good thing to publish now because it seems very outdated. Um, And then the other game that got instantly bought was Clippers. And so I was real excited about Clippers. Um, and then I remember getting the copy in the mail, and I sat, I opened the box, and I looked at these teeny little round circles that they put in the game. And I, I was just like, are you kidding me? And I went to my computer and wrote, what were you guys thinking? I said, you can't put a little part in a game like this. And I'm sure that that was, you know, whether the game would have done better than it did anyway, it's hard to say, but like, that that little part was just a horrible design decision and just destroyed any chance that game had of winning award. And and so that was the again, there's a good it's a good example of like I worked on this game, I love this game. The people who bought it were super excited about it. You know, it was um, Euro games. And I mean they were super excited about it and then they just screwed up the production. I mean, what can you do? And then if you want to go back a little further, <laughs> my favorite moment like that was Wongar. You know, here was a game that Richard Borg and I designed together, which had originally been Samurai's fighting. Then mm-hmm. Goldseeber changed the theme to Aborigines telling stories. When they told me that, I was like, are you kidding? What are you thinking about? <laughs> I mean, this, this has got to be the worst theme ever in a game. <laughs> it's just, it's just, and so, and Wonga, I'm like, what kind of title is that? It's just ridiculous. And so, you know, and that just destroys like everything. All this, all the work I put into that game was just destroyed, and and that happens quite often as game designer. It's pretty demoralizing. So, <laughs> so what do I do? So, so now I'm to the point where I will only I will only sell games to companies that I, that I know they're going to work with me. Like we're actually going to you know work together on the development of the game and every step of the way. It's not like I'm not going to let them change the rules or something like that, but I, I want to be a part of the process. Um, I really want to be involved because I want to be sure that, you know, what comes out is still the game that I designed and not something, you know, I, I won't mention this one guy. I'm not going to mention who he is, but like he's the worst developer ever because he takes a prototype and immediately changes it. And he doesn't have any mm. respect for the design. He doesn't try to understand what the design is. 
he just immediately changes it because he's a frustrated game designer. And so he wants to change it. And so I had a game, you know, come out where I mean, he completely didn't get what the point of the game was and he changed it and it was a disaster. And I think he's still working as a developer. <laughs> he's a nice guy, but he's just he just doesn't have any respect for game design. That's the thing. There are good plumbers and bad plumbers <laughs> in the world, and you gotta differentiate, and the only way you can know is to have them come and fix your pipe. That's right. So <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. It's what what advice then or wisdom do you have to share with some young publishers about how to interact with designers, both young and more be more experienced like yourself? Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I say all of that and I, I just want to qualify that by saying, you know, the publisher is putting up the money and they're putting up their effort and they're at risk. Um, yeah. The game designer isn't at risk. I mean, it's just his work, you know, the game designer's work may go out the window, but but a publisher, you know, I mean, they have the right to do what they do. It's their money. But I just wish that they would, you know, they would consider that the designer knows why they designed the game. And they, they and usually designers, you know, we love our game. They're our babies. Mm-hmm. So I think that, you know, if they would just try to work a little more with them, um, that would be nice. And uh, I think sometimes, the, you know, when people want to change something, they're so adamant about, like, this has to be changed. And I don't think they do the playtesting that designers do. That's that's the other part of it. They just development is should involve playtesting, but I think most of the time it just involves development and getting it ready for production. So jumping ahead, then you have Elfenland in like 19, the ni- late nineteen nineties, and then Ticket to Ride wins the Spiel des Jahres two thousand four. I think that's the right date two thousand four. How? What is it about? How was that experience winning it a second time? And how? How did you? How did the course of your life obviously change a lot since that moment? Yeah, I mean because the because um, Elfenland changed the way the jury handles the award. They were unhappy that um, so many people knew who had won before the award. In fact, a German magazine called Stern had my picture in it, um, and they. And the way they had found out was they called all the manufacturers um, who were, and they found out that, I, I don't know if it was Ludafactor or Lorenz or one of the others, that they were producing like 400,000 copies of Elfenland. So they knew that it won. <laughs> so the jury was pissed. And, and so the jury decided that the night before, they were going to decide on the award winner. And only they were going to know until that morning. So when Alpha, so when Ticket to Ride was nominated, you know, I didn't know it was going to win. And so that was incredible incredibly stressful sitting in that room waiting for the announcement it was amazing um you know i certainly hoped it was going to win and it seemed like it had a good chance it was doing well already um but totally different procedure um and when it won it was just yeah it was great i mean for me like if i I, you may not think i'm interested in winning the award again but i certainly am because it's just it's just such a great experience as a game designer um, it, you, when you go to Essen that year, it's kind of like you're the king of Essen. I think when when Elfenland won, we had I think Kalfoff at their booth had 500 copies of the game. I think I signed almost all of them. I was there for an hour a day signing games, and I mean I was just incredible. It was just like such a you know love fest. I mean I was like, wow, this is great. So when tickets arrived, one I knew what was what was going to happen. You know, it was going to be a great year and. Yeah, so I, I would love to have that experience again, and I wish that every game designer could have that experience again because it's so fulfilling. You know, it just makes you feel like everything you've done is worthwhile. Yeah, I think appreciation is always going to be wanted. Period. And then on top of that, it, it's like you know, you win an Oscar. Like nobody gets tired of winning Oscars. No. Nobody gets tired of winning awards. <laughs> nobody gets bored being appreciated for the thing they do. No, of course, everybody wants more of that. Yeah, it was great. And then what what happened was. Um, with most games, you know, you have a you have the Christmas season, and then maybe the second year the sales are you know a half or a quarter of what they were the first year. With Elfenland, it was clear. Or with Ticket to Ride, it was clear that that wasn't going to be the way it was. So right from the start, the the sales certainly went down in the second year, but from then they sort of did a gradual increase. Um, and then when the iPhone or the iPhone came out, um, that was the real jump, the first big jump. Um, and I think they gave away the iPhone version three different days for free. And I think a million people downloaded the game each of those days. So that I was one of those. Yeah. <laughs> so that was just such a huge you know, breakthrough in awareness of the game. And then the iPad version came out. And then 
and the sales were just going, you know, going up pretty steadily. And then, to be honest with you, the next jump was the pandemic. I mean, the two years of the pandemic, the sales were just amazing. And, and what we heard from everybody was, was that a game store, you know, he's having a tough time deciding what to order. He's going to order the four games that he knows he can sell. He's not going to take a chance yep. on all these new games during a pandemic. Um, so the sales went crazy. Um, and then this year was kind of the adjustment year where we went back to like pre-pandemic sales. It's, it's never fun to make less money. I can tell you that. <laughs> but <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, it's it's still fine. But now I think it's going to continue like that gradual rise. If you took those two years out, you know, you can see just the, the scale. So now today, how do you approach designing new games for the current market? Yeah, I I feel like I'm a little behind because it's so hard to keep up now. Again, with the like 3,000 games coming out of new games every year, you can't even try them all. I mean, <clears throat> so you have to count on other people to sort of recommend games like, hey, you should try this and see what to do. Um, mm -hmm. So it's tough. I mean, but I mean, I don't do, I don't work a ton. Like I work when I feel like it. Bobby West and I have a whole bunch of games together. They're sort of half finished or three quarters finished. But now that we live in different cities, it's gotten a little harder to work together. And I have a few games that, you know, I really want to finish. I have another legacy game actually that I really want to, want to finish. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, that's, but I don't know. I, I just sort of look at it like, okay, if I feel like working on this game today, I'll go work on it. I don't. I'll go enjoy something else in my life. I love to play poker, so any chance I get to play poker, uh, I'm, I'm there. And I, I had a knee operation. I had a knee replacement a few months ago, so I'm just starting to get back to the point where I can actually sit at the poker table for you know, 12 hours a day. <laughs> so as the son of a big poker player, do you play online poker, or is it purely where you have to look people's eyes and be able to sit across the table for you? What is the joy in the deception and the 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 reading of tells or is the joy of the game of poker itself for you? Um, I mean, I played online a lot before black Friday when, you know, we got wiped out and I can't play in Louisiana. So I don't play online anymore. Um, I would, if, if they would, you know, make it legal, but I love, um, face to face poker. I've gone to the world series three or four times and I didn't go this year because of the knee operation, but I'm definitely going next year. So for me now, it's it's really fun to play in the seniors tournament. They had, I think, eight thousand entries in the seniors tournament this year, which is incredible. And the super seniors now, I qualify for that too. And I, I actually won a super seniors tournament at the Venetian uh, last year during the World Series. It wasn't a World Series poker event, but it was a Venetian event. Nice. And that was just it was it was really fun. It was you know, I don't know how many people were in the tournament, but you know, some of the older guys. It's more fun to play with the older guys because they're not these arrogant young guys who are so, you know, they're so focused on, like, you know, respect. I mean, like, respect. We're playing poker. It's not, you know, <laughs> they're so worried about their image. So where the old guys are just kind of more fun. Sometimes they're a little cranky, but even that's fun. So I really, I, I don't know about tell. There definitely are tells, but, you know, most, most poker players are good enough that, you know, you don't know what they're thinking. But there certainly are, are tells in the way they in the way they play, you know. So that if they're super conservative or they're what we call super tight, you know, I mean that's that's one thing that's good to know. Um, so yeah, there was <laughs> a guy sort of a, a guy was harassing me in the in the seniors tournament, uh, like just sort of I don't know why he just decided I was the guy who was going to pick on or something, and I didn't say anything to him. I was just like, "What are you doing?" You know, and I could have called the floor if it had gotten too bad. He got knocked out before me, and I just I didn't say anything as he walked away from the table. But I did look at him, and I could tell he was pissed. <laughs> I was like, "Okay, that was that was that was satisfying." So, from going to Germany and Elfenland to playing poker at the Venetian, what is what what do you think the importance of play and games are? Whether it be poker like Texas Hold'em or games like Ticket to Ride in Elfenland, what do you think the importance of games are? In society in general, yeah. what's your thoughts on that? I mean, most of, I would say before the last, you know, five or ten years, most of my social, you know, gatherings was playing games. I mean, you know, what did I like to do? I like to play games with friends. I think in the last five or ten years, I've combined that with more adult things like going out to dinner and, you know, going on trips and stuff. But um, yeah, I think it's just such a great social activity. You get to know people and. And games with your best friends is just like for me. That's that's 
totally like what I enjoy most. You know, you can, there's a lot of teasing, you know, the usual banter, but, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and I care about who wins the game during the game, but after the game's over, I could care less. You know, I, I just like, I try to play the best I can play no matter what we're playing. And then after it's over, who cares? You know, it's, let's play another game. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's, it's poker is, when I first started playing poker, I don't know, you know, when I started going to casinos 20 or 25 years ago, I was much more emotional and, like, would get upset about losing and, you know, bad luck and stuff. Now I just, okay, you know, so what? I had bad luck. That's like, whatever. I just play because I really enjoy it. And, and I laugh at the people who get, you know, all emotional about it. It's like, what are you doing? You know, you need to grow up like I did. <laughs> so, <laughs> but I actually think that's one of the secrets to poker is to distance yourself from that specific hand. Like I actually understand as a son of a poker player that it's the long game that you're playing, not the short game. And yes, there are pivotal hands that make a huge difference, but if you're paying that close attention where you're actually responding, then that's part of the tells you to be careful. You're not doing exactly. So yeah, absolutely. I think it's, it's the long game. And so people play poker for eight, nine hours. They sit in that chair for at least four and keep it going. It helps to remind you that that is the long game. It is the stay in the chair. It is the keep hand after hand coming along. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, one of the big hands in that tournament I won, um, you know, was like the the river card was just like the guy thought it was the best card for him when it was the worst. And, and after, you know, I won that pot, which gave me a lot of chips. He talked about that for like the next hour. He just couldn't get over it. <laughs> and I felt bad for him, you know, because he was a nice guy. And it was, he just couldn't get over it. So that hand is now imprinted in my memory because it was so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, we are deep in the rivers and straits of poker right now in the submarine. <laughs> but let's go ahead and thank you for your story, Alan. It was fantastic, but we don't want to keep it too much longer. So let's turn on our sonar and see what we're looking forward to playing in the future. So on the sonar, we talk about one game we're looking forward to playing. I'll go ahead and kick this one off. So as the as your resident RPGer here, I am looking forward to playing Old Gods of Appalachia. So mm. this is a podcast, actually, that is a story. It's literally a it's like an anthology that takes place in an alternate Appalachia. For those of you who don't know, Appalachia is a stretch of mountains <sighs> on the eastern coast of the United States where... You know, you're, you're very stereotypical Americans live like your Hicks, rednecks like me, who, you know, <laughs> it, 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 it's, this, it's this alternate dark fantasy Appalachia that is thoroughly enjoyable and I love it. And they had a huge Kickstarter that was an RPG for the Cypher system that is not as well known as 5e, but it's still a very good system. I picked it up. I love the setting. I've been reading the book. I'm loving the rules. It's like D&D, but simpler, which is always a plus for me. And I'm looking forward to the, I'm running I am running a game on Halloween for the for my store. So there's gonna be a bunch of six of us who have paid to play. I wanna sit down and try to give them the best experience possible playing in this, you know, Appalachia. You know, North Carolina is part of Appalachia, so it's gonna be very at home with this. I'm just pumped. I love the setting, I love the theme, I love the system. But odds hopefully they actually translates well into a good game. But that's how old gods of Appalachia. Where are you from, Josh? I'm from Wilmington, North Carolina. You're kidding me. I'm going to be there in a couple of weeks, actually. <laughs> really? What part? Um, well, my, some of my best friends live there now. Um, Frank and Susan. I know. You're kidding. That's all. <laughs> I, think, I think me and him have had a conversation about this, because I used to work at Cape Fear Games, the store there, and I just talked with Frank briefly, and he's like, yeah, I know Alan R. Moon's like, oh, great. That's awesome. <laughs> I think we haven't talked, because I, I don't work there anymore. I, I frequent there, but like I haven't seen him. I, oh, that's awesome. I hope, I, I hope you have a great time here. I think he set up a, a thing at the, I don't know if that's the game store or another game store where I'm going to be actually there signing games one day. So, um, yeah, I was just going to say, because okay. that sounds so interesting, the Appalachia role-playing game. I'd love to play that. <laughs> hey, well, if, if you want to play a session, you know, we we have emails. Reach out to me. I'll, yeah. I'll plan a session. Okay. That'd be cool. That'd be really cool. <laughs> Yeah, just let me know. I'll gladly plan a session of Old Gods for you. Thanks. Yeah, I'll reach out for sure. <laughs> but on this note, Alan, what are you looking forward to playing in the future? Um, yeah, I just I, I saw a review on BGG. Um, Scott Alden uh, said that First Rat was a was a really good game, and then 
I asked some other people and they all said, oh, yeah, it's really good. And so I bought a copy. I think it's behind me somewhere back there. Um, so I'm looking forward to that. I read the rules and, and I can see what the clever. Well, I think I can see what the clever part of it is where you get the choice of movement. Um, and when you first read the rules, it sort of thinks like you can move one guy quite far or you can move all of your people like a little less. I was like, well, why wouldn't you always move all of your people? But then I I looked at the uh, some of the re- video reviews on online. And I go, oh yeah, that's real clever. So I'm really looking forward to it. It seems like it's a pretty simple game. I love games where you get lots of stuff, where you get lots of resources and things, because then, then you get to do something with them. You know, you get to spend. Them. I love games like that. So this feels like it's it's going to be a real hit with me. I hope so. Andrew. So I picked up a copy of Boone Lake, and I am a Maracaibo fan. And I like Great Western Trail, but I like Maracaibo more. So I'm hoping this continues this Alexander Fister love affair that I have now. And I hope this Boone Lake turns into something. I, I like this idea of this game, too. It's It's got some interesting mechanics involved that I, I've forgotten what they are at this moment, because, of course, I'm drawing a blank. <laughs> but Apparently, they're not based on the theme. They're just based on doing cool stuff. So I'm always a fan of doing cool stuff in games. And I'm going to go float down this river to the Boone Lake. Oh, that sounds interesting. Well, we don't want to keep you here too much longer, Alan. So let's shoot up to the surface and let you go. Well, Alan, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you on the submarine today we are going to play old gods i we're going to make this happen once you you visit here but if uh people want to support you people want more alan r moon in their life what can they do oh man i don't know i mean like i said this is the last uh you know few weeks with uh feedback on legends has been so great i like you know, I'm constantly sending Rob and Matt like, just see this review? You know, like, they're probably tired of that by now. But, um, yeah, it's been, it's been good. I, I don't feel like I need, you know, any more support than I've got. Uh, actually, uh, although I'll tell you, I'm going to BGG this year, um, BGG Con, and they're having a new thing called Meet the Designers. There's about five of us giving seminars. Um, I, when I learned about that, I, I immediately said that I want mine to be more fun than Eric Lang's. And he says, all right, <laughs> he says, game on. So I have some really great surprises for my seminar. So I hope you nice. <laughs> I guess it's got to be more fun than Eric's. I might go to Eric's just to make sure there's some problems. <laughs> sabotage i like it <laughs> well awesome well listeners thank you thank you so much for tuning in today as always my name is josh i'm andrew hey i'm Alan. thanks a lot guys <laughs> <laughs> and this has been the tabletop submarine thank you for listening if you'd like to support the tabletop submarine podcast please consider giving us five stars on itunes and share this podcast with your friends family and other gamers in your life See you on the next voyage.